So Ecclesiastes 12, we're going to wrap this up, but as we do, uh, I was trying to think of a way to kind of describe what this last little part of Ecclesiastes does, because it plays a really crucial role in understanding the book. And I think it really helps if we think about how we understand stories, real life stories, movies, books, it really doesn't matter. They all kind of share this stuff in common. And one I thought of to kind of draw it out was, um, you guys know the story of Franz Ferdinand? He was the Archduke who was assassinated in 1914 on June 28th. He and his wife Sophie were, um, were assassinated in a terrorist attack by some Serbian separatists. He was the heir to the Austro-Hungarian Empire's throne. And that's, you know, that's a story in and of itself that would make the news, right? But if you stop there, you really miss the big picture because that, those shots, that assassination is what sparked a domino effect that led to World War I, where 20 million people would die and the, the global balance of power across the whole world would be reshaken and shuffled around. It changed everything. The story is very different when you see the full picture, right? If you stop at the point of that one event, you see things in a certain way. You think it means a certain thing, right? But if you zoom out and you see it in its fullness, we get a very, very different perception of it. And you can think about this with, think about your favorite movie or your favorite book, your favorite story, right? And think about if you stopped 15 minutes in or a chapter or two in and you thought that was the whole story. How different, how different is that? It's a radically different idea that you're going to get from that movie or that book. It's a totally different story when you have that small, diminished picture. Now, as we finish up Ecclesiastes, this is important to realize because what we're going to see is that really what Solomon was doing as we, we heard his explore the world under the sun, what he was doing is he was looking at the first 15 minutes of the story. Pretty much exclusively. That's, he was just zoomed in on that. And he saw it as the full story. You can hear this in the way he talks about it. His examination of life under the sun too often sees life under the sun as it. This is everything. You have to find everything here. You have to find your satisfaction here. You have to make sense of things with just this. And it doesn't work. He can't do it. Everything is unsatisfying. It doesn't make sense. And so he declares that it's vanity. It's futile. It's like chasing the wind. Now what the last verse in Ecclesiastes does is it pushes us past that horizon, right? It doesn't let us stay in the first 15 minutes of the story. It makes us look beyond. This is what it says. I'm going to start in verse 13, but we're going to be first focused on verse 14 today. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. The last word of Ecclesiastes points us to the judgment of God. The fact that he will judge every thing, the things known, the things unknown. And he will determine whether they are good or evil. And in bringing us to that, in drawing us to that fact, it immediately forces us to look forward, to not just look at life defined by under the sun. It 
presses our boundary out to where we have to see the bigger picture. And we, it forces us to look at life under the sun in light of what lies beyond it, beyond that horizon. And in seeing the full story, we're going to be able to actually rightly understand Ecclesiastes. We're going to be able to rightly understand and put into perspective everything that Solomon has seen, which has been true. The things that he has seen about the world here have been very, very true. Right? But they have been incomplete. And the judgment of God is what pushes us to see the other things we need to make them make sense in the broader story of what God is doing in the world. So let me pray for us and we'll dive in. Lord, thank you so much for giving us your word that, that shows us beyond what Solomon saw, that lets us see beyond what we can just see with our eyes. And we are not left to make sense of this life just from what we read in the headlines and what we experience in life because we would draw the wrong conclusions as Solomon does so many times, but you have given us your revelation in your word to explain to us what these things actually mean, how we should interpret them, what you're actually doing, and we thank you so much for the gift that that is, and I pray this morning as we look at it that you would help us, Lord, that you would guard my words, that I would give your people your words, and anything that is not of you would, would fall away and be forgotten. Lord, I pray that you would give us receptive hearts that would hear what you have to say and receive it and would be molded by your word through your spirit this morning. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. So one of the key things that we can't miss when we're looking at Ecclesiastes is that Solomon is very specifically, over and over again, he says he is looking at life under the sun, right? And under, life under the sun means the here and now. Life in the created order that has fallen under the curse for sin. That's what Solomon's looking at. That's his, his scope. And this project of looking at the world under the sun, it, it, this exploration, it stops at the grave. Right? Solomon doesn't really see anything past that. We see this really clearly in Ecclesiastes 3. He says this, For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. And man has no advantage over all the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. All right, so for Solomon, he says, I have no idea what's happening after his death, but we all do. And so that's just, that's where he stops. He doesn't have any confidence in anything beyond that. And this lack of confidence or this doubt about anything beyond the grave colors his observations and conclusions completely. Everything he looks at is colored by this where his horizon stops. Ecclesiastes, for the most part, is, is by God's intention a nearsighted book. It doesn't see the whole picture. It focuses in and zooms on the beginning as the whole story. And, and God does that intentionally because by seeing that, by seeing this part, and by seeing how that works out in Solomon's life, how it doesn't work that way, it helps us to see more clearly what, where we need to look. It keeps us from doing and making the same mistake that Solomon did. It shows us that the here and now cannot be enough. It will never be enough. If you try to understand this world here and now without what comes next, it's like trying to fit the whole story into the first act. You end up trying to find the solution where the problem is being laid out. So here 
in our last little bit of Ecclesiastes, we're finally reoriented to where we actually sit in this story that we live in. It reminds us that Ecclesiastes has been zoomed in onto chapter 1, on this particular part, life here in this world under the curse. And that in order to understand that well, to move through that well, to think about it well, we have to understand it in context of the whole story. And it doesn't give us the whole story, right? It just kind of points us forward to the end. It's like it hits the fast forward button like four times speed, and then we're there. Judgment. But we have the rest of Scripture to kind of fill in the in-between. But it fast forwards us to the judgment of God and blows that horizon of under the sun away. And I've tried to show this along the way as we've gone through Ecclesiastes, that the observations that Solomon makes mean very different things when we see them in light of what God shows us later on about his work in the world and what he's doing. So let's explore this, and let's start with the problems of seeing what's only right in front of us, the problems that Solomon ran into. What did he see when he looked at the here and now and only that? Well, the struggles were many, right? He said everything is vanity, was essentially his conclusion. Everything is futile. Everything is a vapor. You can't grab onto it. It looks like something real, but it's not. It's here today, and it's gone tomorrow. Right? And he articulated this in a lot of different ways. He said some of the things that were frustrating, that were vanity, were the fact that the evil prosper. Right? Evil shouldn't prosper, but it does. And not only does it prosper, a lot of times it's celebrated. While on the other hand, those who do well often struggle and are quickly forgotten. Ecclesiastes 7.15, he says, In my vain life I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. He also struggles with the fact that, that the one who labors to build wealth, he lo- loses it. All the time he gets lost to violence or chance or to death. And people who didn't work for it, who didn't earn it, end up getting to spend it. That's unjust. And he calls it vanity. He's also frustrated by the fact that you never know what will come. And you can't control the future. You don't know it. You can't control it. You're the victim of fate or circumstance. We know it's the providence of God. But that is frustrating to him because he doesn't see God the way that we do. Right? He wants to control it. He wants to know what's going to happen so he can keep himself safe and he can mitigate these threats and disasters that he sees, and he can't do it, and that is vanity. Another thing that frustrates him is his inability to find satisfaction or joy in anything here. Right? He threw himself in to all sorts of different things in this world, things that in a lot of ways are, are very good. And he takes them to the point of, of the absolute nth degree you can go with them, to the point of abuse in some instances, trying to make them do something that they cannot do. And after he got everything you could ever possibly dream of in this world, succeeded in, every, in ways that we can't even imagine, he said, I hated my life. I hated my life because it couldn't do what he wanted it to do. It could not satisfy him. And ultimately, his biggest problem, the one that comes up over and over again, is the inevitability of death. It doesn't matter what you do, good, bad, succeed, don't succeed, prosper, achieve a lot, don't, be wise, be foolish, we all die. 
We can't even determine the time. In Ecclesiastes 9, 2 through 3, he says this, It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and to the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. Solomon is looking at life here, in this world, under the curse of sin. And that's what he sees as the whole story. Right? And he's trying to, to find an answer. He's trying to find a solution. And all he finds is problems. All he finds are things that don't satisfy. He's staring straight at sin and its effects on us. And he's expecting to be able to mine answers out of that. And he can't do it. It doesn't work. Guys, and we can do the same thing. We can do the same thing. Right? We look around and we see all sorts of the things, sorts of things that Solomon talked about. Because what he saw was true. Right? We see governments that subvert, subvert justice and promote evil when they should do the opposite. We see innocent people suffer abuse and violence, sometimes at the places that they most ought to be safe. Sickness afflicts indiscriminately the good and the bad. We see what is evil called good and celebrated, and what is good called evil and derided. It's all around us. And if our view shrinks down to just that, we will do the same thing that Solomon does. If we look just at the here and now for a satisfying ending to all of that, for satisfying answers, where righteousness prevails, you're going to be left wanting. You won't find it there, just as Solomon didn't find it as he tried. You might see it in bits and pieces, echoes of it. God has made provision for the restraint of evil. And in reality, things could be much worse than they are if he just turned us loose. But even in the best cases, what we see playing out before us is a far cry from actual righteousness, a far cry from actual justice, a far cry from the way things ought to be. So if we stay in that shrunken story, right, seeing the world under the sun as, as the only reality, if you stay there long enough, you'll begin to have a distorted view of God, right? Because you'll start to determine who God is by what you look at and see around you. And you'll, your view of God will start to be one of a God who's incapable or unwilling to do good, who doesn't care for his people, and who doesn't accomplish his desires in the world. You'll end up seeing God as either impotent or indifferent, or even evil. If that's where you draw your full conclusion from. So this reminder of God's judgment at the end of Ecclesiastes is this, it's this clarion call to look up beyond the sun. You can't just look there. You have to look beyond it for the answers. That the here and now is not the full story. We have to keep going. And so what this call this reminder of God's judgment, what it does is it points us to a time when absolutely everything will be called to give an account. 
right? We see evil, injustice, all these things all around us, suffering. But this reminder of God's justice tells us that that is not the final story, right? When evil seems to flourish, that's not the final story, right? When the wicked seem to, when the good seem to suffer, that's not the final story. We're seeing a part and a piece, and we're extrapolating it and deciding that it is the full thing. And this reminder of God's judgment tells us, no, it's not. God will set everything to rights. Absolutely everything. Just listen to this one little verse we have about it. God will bring every deed, every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether it is good or evil. There is going to be a reckoning of everything done in God's world by God's creatures. It will all be judged, approved or condemned by him according to what? According to what standard? The standard of his perfect holiness. That's the bar. Nothing less. The deepest motives and the darkest secrets will be unearthed and will be called to account by him. Getting away with it is an illusion and it's going to be shattered. Everything will be laid bare to the justice of God. Now this is a bit of a double-edged sword for us, right? Because on the one hand, this is a cause for rejoicing. Right? When we look and we see horrible things going on in the world, and when we suffer evil, this should give us hope, right? That I may not have justice now. Justice may not come to the innocent now and to victims now, but it will come. God has not forgotten. Nobody gets away with it. That's meant to be a source of hope for us. That's why we have so many Psalms that talk about this. That, that, that celebrate and rejoice in the fact that God will, in fact, punish evil. And we put our hope in that during this time when it seems to be prevailing. God sees, he knows, he hears, and he will not forget. Not a single thing. Psalm 56, 8 tells us, you have, count account, you have kept account of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Everything he remembers. Your suffering at the hands of sin and every wicked thing done. This is a hope that buoys us through a world marred with sin as we suffer these blows, knowing that it does not win out and it will be put to rights. But the same thing that gives us hope is also our problem. Because we're not exempted. We don't get to stand outside of this kind of nodding and approval, saying, yeah, serves them right. We don't just suffer from evil. We commit evil. We are a part of the problem of unrighteousness. We suffer under it, yes, but we commit it. We are part of the problem that has to be righted, that has to be addressed with God's justice our sin will face a reckoning as well. And it will be a, record, a reckoning against that standard of his perfect holiness. Not of those around us, not of all the people we can look around and find that are worse than us, but of God's perfection. As Jesus said in Matthew 5, you must be holy even as your heavenly Father is holy. You have to be perfect. Scripture's clear, could not be more clear on this point, that none of us clear that bar. None of us clear that bar. None of us who stand before a holy God with everything exposed 
can pass through his judgment without condemnation. Not a one. Not for a day. Ecclesiastes says as much in Ecclesiastes 7.20. It says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Flat out. That's full stop. So there's no way that you can stand and give an account for your works and have justice come out well for you. So this is, our, this is our conundrum, right? Judgment deals with the problems that Ecclesiastes poses, right? It sets everything to right. It makes things the way that they ought to be. But the issue is that we are part of the problem, right? We're not on the outside as innocent victims. We are victims and perpetrators. We suffer under sin and we commit sin. We're a party to the wickedness and unrighteousness of the world, no matter how much better we may think we are than whoever we pick out there to compare ourselves to. So if there's a straight line between unrighteousness and judgment, just a straight line, boom. This is a damning ending to a bleak book. That's it. We're done. The light at the end of the tunnel that we think we see is actually just a freight train barreling down the tracks. It's not a light of hope. But thankfully, there is something between where Ecclesiastes begins for all but one verse and where that last line jumps us forward to. There is something in between there. Something interrupts that straight line between unrighteousness and judgment. And that something is a someone. It's the person of Jesus. As sinners, our hope, our ultimate hope is not in justice. Our hope is in mercy and grace. That is what we need. We have to have that before, we can, before justice can be anything good for us. And we find that in Jesus Christ. He turns judgment on its head. Completely transforms it. When we are united to him by faith... We are tied to and accountable for his perfect works rather than our unrighteous ones. We are tethered to his perfect righteousness, not our failure and rebellion. Now, of course, for God to be holy, our unrighteousness, our sin has to receive justice. That has to happen. God just can't wink at it, pretend it's not there. But for you, Christian, for you who are trusting in Jesus Christ, that judgment has already come. That is not a future thing anymore for you. That judgment was meted out at Calvary. Jesus bore your sin and endured the full wrath of God for it on the cross already. It's not that your sin gets winked at or ignored or just pretended it's not there. It's been that it's already been paid in full. Jesus drank the wrath of God for your sin to the dregs. There is not a drop left. And because of that, our status, our relationship to God's judgment has done a complete 180. Outside of Christ, a holy God must pour out his wrath on us, on us because of our sin. He must. If he doesn't, he is a different God. But get this, guys. In Christ... He cannot pour out his wrath on you for sin that has already been punished. 
To do so would make him unjust, which he cannot be, because then he would be a different God. As surely as you were doomed to his wrath before outside of Christ, you are that safe in him. In Christ, judgment day is something entirely different, right? It's not the the ominous sense we get when we hear that term, judgment day, right? Nobody hears that as like a good, exciting thing generally, an initial response, right? But it is for us, because rather than condemnation for all our failure, what we will hear there is the declaration of Christ's faithfulness for you, Christ's faithfulness imputed to you. You will hear God himself declare you a co-heir with Christ who has come into his inheritance and now who gets to enjoy all that Christ has won for you. Judgment Day, Christian, is not something to fear. Judgment Day is a day of glory. Judgment Day is going to be amazing for us because of the work of Christ. It's when all the promises become sight. All the things that we are hoping and believing in become real and tangible. We get to enter into all of it. We no longer have to walk by faith. We now get to see it. And just to be absolutely clear, this is not in question because you are still here. This is not still up for debate. What will happen on that day is not uncertain. It is a settled reality for you if you are joined to Christ by faith. Period. You cannot make it more secure with your best efforts, and you cannot jeopardize it with your worst because it hinges on Christ, not on you. I love this this passage where Paul affirms it in 1 Corinthians 13. He says this, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And he goes on and he says, Now if anyone builds on that foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. Speaking of judgment day. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Now listen to this. Though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. But what Paul's presenting is, is really, it's a theoretical worst-case scenario, right? Of somebody who truly trusts in Christ and does, then does literally nothing good. Not a single good work to their name. I say it's theoretical because this is not how salvation works. When God saves us, when he justifies us, he does sanctify us. He works in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. At different rates, at different paces, it's not the same for everyone, but he always works in us. But Paul is trying to drive this home, right, so that there is no doubt. He's saying the theoretical case of a Christian who has true faith and nothing, like literally nothing. And he says that if that were to happen, if the gospel was adorned with no good thing in your life, yet there's true faith in Christ, you will pass through the fire and be saved. You will come out the other end of judgment day. And enter into life. Even if you look at what you've done and it looks like nothing, you will come safely through because of Christ, not because of you. 
Christian, God's desire is not for you to be scared of Judgment Day. His desire is to reassure you about Judgment Day and to free you for what he has for you in this world. To reassure you that that day is going to be glorious. You are saved and kept by Jesus Christ. So put your energy into the other things I have for you. What I actually want you to be doing, which we're going to get to in a little bit. Your confidence on Judgment Day rests in Christ's faithfulness, not in yours. It's not what you do for Jesus that saves you, but what he has done for you. To reinforce it, Paul in Romans 4, 5 says this, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. We have a beautiful picture of this. It's not a picture, it's a real event, but it's typological in that it's a, it's a real event that points us forward to a greater reality to come. And that's Noah. Noah and Noah's Ark. You guys are probably familiar with the story. The things are pretty bad in the world. Everybody is only sinning continually. Every thought and motive of every man's heart is only evil all the time. Great verse that says how evil we are in about eight different ways. And God says he's going he's gonna to bring his judgment on the earth. And he promises Noah that he will deliver him. He just has to build this, build this ark, and God will deliver him. And Noah trusts God's promise. And he builds the ark, and this flood comes, and it destroys everyone except those who trusted in God's promise and were sealed into the ark of God's deliverance by his spirit. And it's this picture of, of the judgment that was to come, right? This judgment that will wipe out everything except those who trust in God's promised, provided deliverance in Jesus Christ. Just as they were sealed into the ark, we are sealed into Christ by his Holy Spirit. And he passes through judgment for us. Water represents judgment in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament. Just as the ark passed through the water so that the people didn't, so Jesus passes through judgment for us so we, while we ourselves are safely sealed in him. So Judgment Day is a good thing for us once we're in Christ. So now I think the question is like, okay, so like, let's get on with it, right? If, if Judgment Day is good and everything will be put to rights and I'm going to be on the right side of that thing because of Jesus, can we be done here? Right? Like why do we have to still live in this? Why do we have to endure all the evil in the world? Why do I have to endure my own frailty and weakness why do I have to live in a body that continually breaks down and betrays me? Why do I have to be sinned against? And why do I have to, have to hurt other people with my sin? Why does this have to keep going? Why do we have to stay in the midst of all of those futile things that Solomon talked about? Why do we have to stay where just injustice persists and things aren't the way that they're supposed to be? Can we just please get to the end? Well, there's very good reason that we are still here. There's very good reason that we still live in the midst of evil and the reason that we still live in the midst of this suffering. And, and we can start with the end of the account of Noah to get our first clue. Right after God delivers Noah and his family, he makes a promise to Noah. He makes a covenant with him. And there's a lot that can be said about this. This is the super shorthand version of it. But there's three main things. There's kind of two main promises and then a, a sign of this promise. So he promises 
First thing he does is he makes a provision for restraining evil. He institutes basically, essentially kind of the, this is the seed of government that's meant to punish evil, right? He makes a provision for, for restraining evil in the world because he's going to keep the world around and not do what he just did because that's the second promise. He promises not to judge the way that he just judged but to preserve the created order until the end. And then that promise of, of, of a way to deal with evil is, is part of that provision, right? And then there's this sign, this sign that he gives Noah, and it's the sign of the rainbow, right? And the rainbow is pointed up, and that means that this is a promise from God to Noah that depends on him. This isn't something Noah has to do anything to earn. The rainbow is like, if you know what a bow looks like, which way does the, the arrow goes the way that the curve goes, right? So the rainbow's pointing up. God, that's a sign. God's saying, hey, if I do not keep my promise, that is on me. I deserve the punishments for not keeping the promise. He's putting himself on the hook for doing this sort of thing. So what God promises Noah after this, this judgment that's really a foreshadowing, a, a preview of the ultimate judgment, he says, hey, I'm not going to do that anymore till the end. I'm going to preserve this place. I'm going to let it continue. I'm going to give some things to mitigate the evil and to help with that, but I'm going to forbear my judgment and my justice for a while. So we have that promise. But why does he promise that, right? That, that tells us part of the reason it's still going on, but it doesn't tell us why. Why would he do that? Why would he allow evil injustice to continue for so long? Well, here we jump forward to the New Testament. In 2 Peter 3, Peter references the account of Noah, and he gives us a little bit more explanation about it and how it pertains to us. And we need to get a little context for where Peter's writing. Peter is writing to the church during the time of Nero. This is the the worst persecution the church has faced yet. Uh, And the Christians are struggling, right? They are starting to question things a little bit. Their initial understanding of Christ's return is that it would be quick in human terms because Jesus said he was coming back quickly. And, And... God uses time a little bit different than we are. And now some time's gone by. This is a little bit of a later letter compared to most in our New Testament. So they've had some time. A first generation of Christians has died off, and Jesus still hasn't come back. And so, and now the people around them are deriding them and mocking them. So, oh yeah, your, your, your God was going to come back. Yeah, how's that working out for you? So they're suffering persecution. They're being mocked and pressed to doubt the promises of God. And that is what... That's what Peter's writing to them and addressing them about. And this is what he says. 2 Peter 3, he says, Scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. And they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Right? So the Christians are being mocked. They're like, like where, where's your God who's coming back? Everything's just the same. Nothing's changed. Like, why, why are you trusting in this? So they're being pushed towards doubt. They're being mocked for their faith. But then Peter's going to talk about what they're doing, right? He says, For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. He's talking about Noah now. He's saying, hey, like, they've forgotten God's already shown us what this looks like. And they've forgotten that. 
continues on, he says, but by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. All right, so he's saying, hey, what happened with the flood? The same thing's coming, right? And they, everybody is acting just like the people around Noah in his day, laughing at him as he builds a boat on dry land, getting ready for this flood. You're like, You're, you idiot, who does this? This is silly. It's the same thing goes on now, right? Us trusting in a God who's going to come back and bring justice and righteousness to the earth, it gets mocked and derided. It seems like a fool's errand. And Peter says, yeah, they've forgotten. We've already seen a picture of us. We already know what it looks like. And something similar but greater is going to happen again. And now here's the key part for us. Right, Because now, now he's going to kind of come in and say, hey, this is what's going on with them, but now he wants to strengthen their faith right, in the face of, of this opposition. He says this in verse 8, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as, is as one day. God doesn't work on our timelines or the, the schedule that we would like him to. Continue on. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This is it, guys. This is, this is the key. This is why we are still here. This is why evil still exists. This is why injustice is still here. This is why we still have to live in broken bodies. It's because of redemption. It's because of redemption. God is not being slow to fulfill his promise to come back and set things to right because he doesn't care about evil. He cares about evil way more than you do. Way more than you do. We can't even begin to wrap our heads around how abhorrent the slightest sin is to a holy God. Well, it's not indifference. It's not that he's slow. It's not that he's distracted. It's a very intentional decision to be patient and to forbear his justice. Why? For the purposes of redemption. So that that interruption that happened between that straight line for us, between unrighteousness and judgment, he is still interrupting that line for other people. He's still interrupt. He's still taking people that mock and deride him and turning them into his friends and worshipers. That is why this still goes on. He is still taking people who hate him and despise him and making them his own. That's why he waits. It's not because he doesn't care about evil. It's not because he doesn't care about your suffering. He absolutely does. But he's also a God who's kind and who's merciful and who set his affection on us while we were his enemies and made us into his sons and daughters. And he is not done doing that. God's enemies persist precisely because he is still making friends out of his enemies. But that is not something that goes on forever. In verse 10, he reminds them, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens 
and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. There is no change in plan. Right? What we cannot mistake what God is doing now for some kind of indifference to evil or some ignoring or forgetting or anything like that. That is what the world says has gone on, if he even exists. That is not what's going on. It is a deliberate, intentional act of love to delay his judgment to save sinners. Period. Right? So when you see evil raging in the world, right, it's not hard to find. When you see that, it is not a sign that evil is winning. Evil lost already. Jesus won. So when you see it around you, it is not a sign that evil is prevailing. It is a sign that God is merciful and gracious and still redeeming. And it can't be overstated. He hates evil so much more than we do. So much more than we do. We can't even understand how abhorrent it is to him. Yet in his mercy, his justice waits. He holds back his hand of judgment while he gathers his people into the ark of Jesus through the proclamation of his gospel and the gift of faith. So listen, church, we are, we are right to grieve the evil we see in the world. We should. We should agree with God about what we see going on around us. And we are absolutely right to grieve and hate the evil and the sin that we see in us. We're right to grieve the suffering that we come under as we live in the sin-cursed world. But we cannot lose sight of what the persistence of these things mean, what the greater purpose is, that this is the time of God's mercy, that this is the time of God's graciousness, where he is showing compassion to sinners, calling them to trust him for deliverance from their sin. He restrains his hands of justice so that he can show mercy. The day will come when all of that is done away with. As we read in that passage, according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. But it is a kindness of God. It is the kindness of God that interrupts his justice with grace and mercy. And so church, we remain here in this broken world where all this evil, all this stuff we hate is. Why? For the sake of the world. We are God's ambassadors. He has created this time and space between sin and his judgment for the purposes of redemption. And he has called, as he has brought that redemption to us, we now get to proclaim the gospel of redemption to the world around us. We remain in the world for the sake of the world. Paul talked about this. He said, I would rather be gone. This place is hard. It is brutal. It would be better for me to be dead and to be with Christ. But he said, it's better for you that I remain. Right? You are here still enduring these things, not because God in some weird way wants you to suffer and he doesn't care about these things. You're here for your brother and sister in Christ to encourage them, to strengthen them, to bear their burdens. And you're here to bear witness to the God who forgives sinners to the world around us. That is why we are here. We are God's ambassadors during this time. Faith comes through hearing. We are the ones who proclaim the good news of a God who would delay his justice 
to give grace and mercy to sinners at the cost of his own son. I couldn't help but be struck by the, the strange irony that the symbol of God's promised patience, the rainbow, is increasingly used to celebrate rampant unrighteousness. It's such an overt sign of hubris, and yet, in a way, doesn't it bear witness all the more to the glorious mercy of our God that even while people mock him to the degree that they take his promise of patience and mercy and grace and they use it to celebrate stuff that is an offense to him, he still forbears and invites them to come to Christ and be forgiven. That is the kind of God we serve. That is the kind of God we have. He is so much better that we can possibly wrap our heads around, guys. He is so much more gracious and kind and merciful than we would ever be. This is our God, right? And so it does not make light of the suffering here. It does not make light of evil here. But God is, the pinnacle of his glory is seen in his work in Jesus Christ to redeem sinners. And he is still about that. And as long as he is still about that, we are still about that. So we endure. We endure what comes from a sinful world that's in rebellion to him. We endure the effects of sin in our lives so that we might offer we might show the world Christ. That we might take to them the one thing they absolutely need. The forgiveness of sins in him. It's such an incredible thing that he would allow for a time the mockery of his promise so that he can turn mockers into worshipers. We have a great God. Let me pray. Lord, we... Uh, man, there's so much to be thankful for in light of this. To, first of all, that you are a righteous God, that you do not um, let evil slide under the radar, that no injustice will go unpunished, that no unrighteousness will be left to stand, that you are going to create a new heavens and a new earth where all these things are done away with. And yet, at the same time, you are both, you're just and holy and you are also gracious and merciful at the same time. And you, you delay that so that we might come to you for grace and forgiveness in Christ. And, and Lord, what a gift to have been given that. We do not deserve what Christ has done for us. We do not merit it at all. All we merit is your wrath. And you have shown us such grace and mercy. And Lord, I pray that you would not let us forget that. It is so easy for us to slip into self-righteousness, especially when we look at evil around us. And may we not forget that those around us who do things that don't make sense to us, to do things that we maybe hate and find abhorrent, let us not remember that we were one of them. Had not your mercy and grace intervened, they are no different than, than we were. The only difference is the grace of Christ. Soften our hearts towards them. Make us for them, even if they hate us and despise us. We thank you for Christ. We thank you that this world is not everything, but that we have a home to look forward to where every vestige of sin and unrighteousness will be done away with, and we will dwell with you in perfection forever. Keep our eyes fixed on that hope. Don't let them fall to just what's below the sun. We pray that you do this by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.